0: Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we are joined by David A. Fields. David is a true consultant's consultant who works with boutique consulting firms worldwide. He's a best-selling author, speaker, consultant, and mentor. David also heads the Ascending Consortium, whose clients are a who's who of the business world. David, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm absolutely delighted to be with you again. (laughs)
0: Yes. So David and I did an interview for uh, my other show, Ditching Hourly, and it was so wonderful that we wanted to get him to come on to Business of Authority and uh, talk about less tactical things. So if you're interested in sort of the tactical things that come up on this episode, you can jump over to Ditching Hourly and just search for David A. Fields and, and you can get more into the specific ideas, you know, fishing where the fish are and how to build trust in a five minute relationship and things like that. It's absolutely fabulous. There's a transcription and everything there. Um, but today we want to talk a little bit bigger picture about, David, how you built your business. You know, you have two different target markets. Why is that? Is that is that easy? Is that hard? How did that come to be? You've got two books. I, I didn't realize you had two books. Is that true?
1: Yeah, I have two with two more on the way slowly. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so, you
0: know, how do you see those books fitting into your ecosystem? Uh, so things like that to set the context a little bit. But why don't we start there? Why don't we start with a little bit of background for people who are just meeting you for the first time? How did you sort of get into the space
1: that you're in now? My business has, has evolved. I've been in consulting for a little over 20 years. And I'm a big believer in following the market and doing what the market tells you that it wants, as opposed to going out and saying, here's what I want to do. I really think this is interesting. And then trying to find someone to buy it it's just so much easier to sell what the market is already saying they want to buy. So I was—I uh, worked for a boutique firm, and for seven, eight years was a partner there, and then spun off and co-founded a, another boutique. That again, we did something different than our the original boutique did because I had buyers coming to me saying they wanted something different. So I had corporate buyers. I was very short time into this before I, I created this consortium where I would bring, basically, because I talked to so many buyers and so many buyers of consulting services, and they said they needed different things, and I'm about responding to the market. So they said they needed something. I would bring them that. It's very common now. There are aggregators, there's Catalan, there's Hourly Nerd, there's something like 50 or 60 different groups that are fairly large that will bring to a client some expertise. Uh, When I started this, it was much less common. You know again, it is responding to the market. I really spent a lot of time trying to understand why clients buy and what makes projects successful. So my initial business, the uh, the ascending consortium, was all about helping clients more successfully use consultants. Basically, what happened is is a number of the consultants that I would bring in started asking me, "How are you selling these projects?" And especially, how is it that you asked what we would charge for the project, and we said, um, whatever, $150,000, and you sold it for five hundred. dollars <laughs> <laughs> You kind of let us in on that. And, um, and, and it all worked, you know, because I didn't pocket the whole difference. Everybody made out uh, very well, including the clients. And so purely on a lark, this is n- not kidding, purely on a lark, I decided I would coach a, a couple of consultants. So that was, that's going back six, seven years or, or so. Um, at this point, 95% of my business is working with consultants. And that business has just exploded. It's crowded out the corporate business. I personally love it. And I've been doing this a long time. And so this is a way for me to to follow the market and have fun.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the difference between solo consultants and boutique firms, which appear to be the big sort of client target markets that you focus on now. Right. Obviously, one is a, a firm and presumably with the word boutique in there, fewer than 10 employees. Is that fair to guess?
1: Uh Well, most of my clients are um shy of twenty five million, so typically a hundred or fewer folks. What one person considers a boutique or a small firm, another would consider giant and vice versa. You know, I work with firms that are uh, ninety million or, and over that think of themselves as as tiny firms because everybody's looking to the right right everybody's looking <laughs> yeah going well compared to them compared to Accenture, I don't even exist right. So for me, there are some natural breakpoints that I've seen in terms of how firms function. Once you hit 50 people, a lot of things change. But clearly, one of the the biggest shifts is between a solo practice, someone who's just on their own, and someone who is scaling up and and has uh, at least a a few employees. Those are just completely different in terms of operations, in terms of how they're going to market, in terms of what they want to do with the business. And so I, I draw some distinctions. Also, they're different in what they can afford, typically. My fee structure is quite different for a boutique than it is for a solo consultant.
0: I'm actually looking at your website right now. And I know that you just did a huge redesign. I'm guessing it was completely from scratch.
1: It looks so
2: different, David. It looks yes, great. Yes, it
1: does. <laughs> Ho- hopefully different good.
2: Yeah. Oh, yes. It looks way better. Way better.
0: What instigated that... Change. I'm sure it was a. uh, It looks like it was probably a significant investment. I'm sure it took a lot of time on your part. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, of course. But why would you do that? What What was the? It was you know based on some strategic initiative that you had set for yourself, or what was the thought process there?
1: Yeah. So if you knew what this cost and the amount of time it took, you'd be you'd be shocked. Your jaw would drop. But the the old website was from the days when most of my business was corporate business. And then I had a little bit of business sort of on the side as fun that was consulting. The site that just got replaced was probably six or seven years old, at least. And uh, my business has shifted. So my, my website no longer reflected what I do. And that's problematic. That makes it confusing for people who have heard of me and then look into me. And I knew I was losing business. I was literally losing business. A website typically won't win you business, but it can lose you business.
0: Yeah, I agree yes. with that. And
1: I know absolutely, uh, in fact, there were some people who, who called, some prospects who called and said, you know, I wasn't going to call you because I, I saw your site and then decided, well, you know, I'll reach out anyway. And because <laughs> it, it didn't represent the business. It certainly did not speak to boutique consulting firms. And so it was just desperately uh, needed.
0: Cool. All right. So let's talk a little bit about... Books and how that fits into your strategy. So you've you've got two books right now, right? And I think before the show you said you've got two more slowly on the way. (laughs) I noticed that the guide to winning clients is like number eight in the pricing category on Amazon right now, which is, is really impressive, ahead of Ron Baker and William Poundstone's seminal works. So very well done there. First of all, was that the first book or is that the second book?
1: That's the so the guide to winning clients is the second book. The first book was published, I think, in 2012. It reflected my old business model, which was for uh, clients. So it's written for clients, though I would guess at least 60% of the, the people who buy that book are consultants. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's good for, for both sides, but it was written for the, the client side. It's quite, quite different <laughs> from the uh, Guide to Winning Clients.
0: Yep. Actually, now that I'm looking at it, I do, rem- I do recognize that from our last conversation. But the one that I read was The Consultant's Guide to Winning Clients, which was mm-hmm. so great. It crowded the other one out in my mind. <laughs> okay. So how, how long did it take you to write it?
1: The actual writing process was probably six months, I'm guessing, you know plus or minus a month, I think. And also it depends, what, what do you consider part of the writing process? Because there's writing then there's rewriting. There's having the beta readers give feedback and tweaking based on that, right? So, so the entire process, uh, you know, typically a book is uh, certainly a, you know a book of of any uh, scope, and if you're getting it commercially published, is a one to two year project. So books are not for the faint of heart. And I would separate a little bit the idea of books and this particular book. <laughs> I will typically tell my clients that first of all, I mean, books are great. they're They're a great calling card. However, um, any kind of of written content is typically a very slow build. It's an extraordinary marketing vehicle, but it's also a very slow marketing vehicle. It's extraordinary because it's out there forever. It lasts. It's extremely enduring versus anything you might put on the web, which is is you know can disappear in a matter of moments. But the build is extremely slow. If you want something fast, you get up on stage and you speak. If you want something enduring, you write. So books in general, they're an investment. They're an investment in time. They're an investment in your business. You know, so you just have to be ready for it. This book was a little bit different. It's only different because of how it turned out. Uh, I'm very fortunate. There are very good books. And, I, and I've seen a lot of very good books. And then there are truly great books. And, there, and there's a fairly large gap. Between great books and good books, the irresistible consultants guide to win clients is a great book. You know, modesty aside and all that. I mean, I'm I'm just got very fortunate with it.
0: No, I agree. Uh, It's great.
1: I managed to you know one way or another transcend that that chasm between good books and great books, and as a result, the impact on my business has been unusual.
0: Mm -hmm. Can you describe it?
1: Um, I get inquiries every week from prospects who said, Hey, I picked up your book in the, um, LA airport or in Atlanta or Chicago. I actually sell more books in the Chicago airport, um, bookstore than probably any place else. <laughs> <That's awesome>. <laughs> <laughs> it is, um, yesterday, literally yesterday, I, uh, got verbal approval. I don't signature. So, um, you know, knock on wood and all that from a new client, a boutique client. So, you know, we're talking a six figure value who picked up my book in the Chicago airport. I don't know this person from anyone. All I know is he picked up the book, he called and said, I need to work with you. You know, we had three conversations and there we go.
2: But when you when you wrote the book, when you or when you decided to write the book, what was in your mind at that point? How did you picture the book fitting into your business model?
1: Well, I kind of assumed it would be somewhere between the first book, which was The Executive's Guide to Consultants, And what it ended ended up being, meaning the executive's guide to consultants. I didn't actually care whether anybody read. I wanted McGraw Hill to publish it, which they did, and I wanted to be able to use it as a calling card. It instantly made money, meaning uh, within uh, moments of (laughs) of having published it, I won projects from corporate clients because of it. So it did what it was supposed to do, but it it wasn't what I would call a retail book. Meaning I wasn't expecting wide readership. Because I don't need it on the corporate side. If you're winning $250,000 projects or $2 million projects or, or whatever, it doesn't take many of them to pay off a book. The newer book is geared towards an audience that tends to be smaller and their lifetime value tends to be a little bit lower. And therefore, I needed readership to be higher. And so I did care actually whether people would read it and recommend it to others. You know, So I say I'm very fortunate and I got lucky in that this book turned out to be a great book. But we worked really hard. To make it a great book, it didn't just happen. It's not purely by happenstance. We worked very hard to make it a book that turned out that way, and so the strategies were a little bit different. and And my hope was that every, every author's hope is that the book does what this book has ended up doing. Right? You you end up just clients ca- calling out of the blue. You know, I w- didn't expect it to go quite to this level.
0: I remember uh, I worked at a boutique firm in the early 2000s, and the owner had written like the definitive book on the sort of niche space that we were in. So I had a front row seat to that, the magic of having a great book. No one would even know what it was if I said the title, if I could even remember it. But he was extremely well known in the space as the author of this book. And when I tell you that phone would just ring every day, I am not kidding. And people would just be like, oh, I read Chris's book. And we just, yeah, so we called you guys. Like we didn't even consider anyone else. It's like magic, you know, it's like planting a garden and that just, it just keeps pumping out fruit. It was just unreal.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant when it works. I work with a a consulting firm down in Colorado. It's the same thing. The uh, head of the firm writes these crazy sized tomes and he has an audience of about 15 people. I kid not. It's extremely esoteric what he writes about. And in each book is is meant for the 15 people who will understand that and realize they need him. And so he writes these books. They're not for broad distribution and they create clients.
0: What do you think about the difference between traditional publishing and self-publishing?
1: Well, um, my books are so far have been commercially published. And I, I, don't, I think that my first book, I wanted to be commercially published. Again, I was very lucky. I had four publishers interested in it. So I got to play them off each other. Um, even though I was going to go with McGraw Hill, no matter what, because <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to have a book with McGraw Hill on the spine. After that, that why,
0: why was that? Why were you so excited about that?
1: Because the, for a corporate buyer, especially for a sophisticated corporate buyer, um, they still care. And, and in fact, you know, there was a, there was a, a period where I think people didn't really ask and they didn't care. Like wherever your book was published is fine. Now, though, I'm getting the sense that corporate buyers are very wise to the, the, they understand that everyone can produce a book. It's so easy to produce a book that having a a commercial publisher acts a little bit the the same way they view uh, going to an Ivy League school. It's that the Ivy League school has done some pre-vetting. So you look at a candidate, a job candidate from an Ivy League school, a lot an Ivy League school a little bit differently, not necessarily because they're smarter or anything, but because someone else has already done the work to figure out whether they're smart. And a commercial publisher, it's so hard still to get a commercial publishing contract. But if you get one to a, a corporate buyer, they're starting to realize, you know what, this must be something because it, it's published by you know, a real deal publisher. That said, I would not worry about it if you can't get a publisher. It's not worth um, holding back your book because you can't get a publisher. Um, if, you, if you've got a, a book to write, write the book. Um, I think the strongest advice I can give is if you're going to go through the trouble to write a book, invest in the book. Don't don't cheap out and get a cheap cover and edit it yourself or get your <laughs> friend to edit it. Um, yes. Do it, you know, do it for real.
0: Well, you've got these two different experiences with the two books. How much of the book was just an idea when you started talking to publishers or did you have the whole thing done, basically, or at least the first draft done?
1: So the first book um, I did very traditional route. I did a book proposal. I had a sample chapter and nothing else was written, just an outline and a sample chapter. And, and then um, publishers said they liked it. And we went from there. Now, the irony is my sample chapter never made it into the book.
0: Yeah, of course. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: I rewrote that three times and I could never get it to work. And so I just dropped it. The Guide to Winning Clients. I also did a proposal, but I knew what that book was because it's actually based on a course that I'd created previously called the client acquisition formula the rough content the ideas and and to a large extent the structure was already built writing a book is a great way to to sharpen your understanding of your own material and this was no exception and we did make some structural changes when you know it came time to write the book and so now I've had to go back and adjust the course
0: right that's actually something I'd like to key off of for a second. We have similar paths and I coach independent software developers. And one of the things the, the two pillars of really, really impactful trust building that I recommend to people are speaking, like you already said, and writing books, like you already said. And it's exactly what you said. The book takes a long time, the speaking takes a lot less time, but it's, you know, it's a lot more work in the well, they're both a lot of work, but it's a different kind of work. The thing with the writing a book is a lot of people have this sort of fantasy maybe about like, I, they just, I want to have a book. I want to have a book. I don't know what it's going to be about, but I would know I want to write a book <laughs> right? and that scares me. I'm like, don't, don't do that. If somebody tells me they want to write a book, the first question I ask isn't, isn't what's it going to be about? It's who's it for? And yeah, that's smart. Yeah. If they can't answer that question, I'm like, don't write a book. And so the thing that I tell them to do is create, you know, same thing. It's like, if you're so smart about this subject, make a course first way easier. It's just so much easier to kind of map the whole thing out. You can test it. You get beta feedback on your ideas and how they translate to the audience or the students or whatever you call them. And when you've proven the concept more or less, then you can write a book and, and really, really, put the ideas in a pressure cooker almost, and it really boils it down, refines it, sharpens the edges, makes it really, really impactful. Because to me, just writing a book, because you feel like writing a book, I mean, I think everybody should write a book. I think it's a great thing to do. Uh, but if you want it to actually have a positive impact on your business, you need to be a little bit careful. You know, I don't know, it seems like a big risk to just write a book and not really know who it's for, or what you're gonna do with it, or how it works
1: in your business. Yeah, especially if you don't like writing. <laughs> right, I mean, not everybody likes writing. Yeah, but,
2: but I like the leveraging that you're talking about here because whether you write the book first and then develop a course or you develop the course and write the book, what you're doing is you're feeding those two revenue streams in your business.
1: But Writing that course or, or creating something and getting a chance at a, a low-expense way, at a low-risk way to get feedback from prospects, to find out um, what's important and what's not, what's useful and what's not, what's exciting to them is this is all the information you want to know before you write your book. Is writing a book is the mm-hmm. same as, as consulting. I mean, you, you know, my first rule of consulting is consulting is not about you. It's about them. It's about the clients. And the same thing is true about the book. And, and I think too many authors forget this, especially professionals who are trying to write a book like we're talking about. They think the book is about them or they think the book is about their ideas. And it's not. It's 100% about the reader. Mm-hmm. And so the better you understand your reader, the better a book you can create. And do, uh, a course definitely gives you the, the feedback that will help you shape the, the book. So I, I think that's a good insight on your part.
0: I think I get it from the music background, because if you you know you write a song and if you're going to go into the studio and record it, that's a big investment. It's I mean, not that big an investment, but if you're broke and living in a van, it's a big investment. <laughs> So, you might as well go stand on the corner and play the song. And if people throw money in the hat, it's a good song. If people don't throw money in the hat, you still got work to do. And it's so cheap and easy to do that. But it, it, you know, it's scary, of course. It's like, it feels very safe to go into the studio. There's no one, no one's going to sneer at you or laugh or point or whatever. If you don't do that, I feel like you're, you're increasing, unnecessarily increasing the risk of losing that investment, having it just, Launched to crickets, which is the worst feeling in the world. I'd much rather be laughed at and pointed at than launched to crickets after spending $10,000. Yeah,
1: yeah, well, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, first of all, I'm glad that people threw money in your hat. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's good. Um, and, you know, it is scary putting out a book right? because you don't know what the reviews are going to be right. and you don't know what feedback will be.
0: And there's nothing and, you can do
1: <laughs> and once it's out there, it's out there, right? So there's no question. You know, it takes a little bit of courage not to do the writing, to actually put it out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that takes some, that takes some scour- courage. It, it, it's, uh, I, for me, at least, it's downright scary. I, you know, I still worry about, is it suddenly all people are going to write bad reviews? I don't have too much of a worry about that anymore, <laughs> but... Um,
0: no, you have like two hundred five five-star reviews. <laughs> <It's> like
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, you know, and, and someone actually wrote a, a bad review and I was so thankful because... It was starting to look fake the the reviews on my book because I mean after a while you've got somebody must not like it
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) somebody must not get the joke
1: exactly
0: right clearly you're all in on writing books you've had a lot of success with what you've written so far and you're working on two more books Uh, those I assume are also going to be commercially published
1: Uh, yeah the my publisher wants the next couple books publishers will look at your last book. And if you're, you know, one book does well, even if you're not commercially published, if you can demonstrate that you've sold a lot of copies, a publisher will pick it up. Publishers do not care what's between the covers. Publishers only care about whether it will make them money.
2: Mm -hmm. It's
1: the business. Yeah, sort of. not a very good business, but it's a business.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't want to be in it. I've got, I have three commercially published books and two, two or three, depending on how you count them, self-published books. The is strike, I mean, it's it's almost staggering, the difference between the two, the amount of work that's involved, the breakdown of the money, the reach that you get with one versus the other. I mean, it's almost like two completely different animals. We've talked about this in the past, so I won't go into it, but we have an episode about should you write a book, and and we get into the, the sort of pros and cons of a self-published versus commercially published approach. So people can look for that. Um, so here's what I'm wondering about okay, great. You've got this really successful book and you're getting lots of leads. What do you, how do you then take that to the next level? How do you leverage your expertise into something that funds your overall mission? Having sold books before, it's usually not the kind of thing you're going to live off of that income. Uh, it's pretty rare, I think, to have a book that's so popular that you can live off the income like Stephen King. Sure. Um, you know, Yeah.
1: well, JK Rowling and Stephen yeah, King and I were pretty much at the top yeah, of the <laughs> three of you there.
0: That's very nice. <laughs>
1: I mean, I don't have no idea whether I make any money on the book. I, I assume not. Uh, yeah, I don't
0: even know. Like my commercially published books, I couldn't even tell you how much I've made because I didn't care about that.
1: Right. My, yeah. They say the publisher sends me a check. I don't know monthly or quarterly or something. I, I don't know because I don't get the checks and I don't. I I pay no attention to it. You know, when someone signs up yesterday, which I I told you, and and I'm getting inquiries every week. I mean, it monetizes itself very quickly.
0: Sure. So it's, and so, but how do you do that? So, like, how do you structure your offerings, or what offerings do you have for people that are, you know, we've talked about product service ladders in the past. You appear to have something like that. Could you talk us through that a little bit? You know, which ones are sort of high touch, which ones are easier to sell, harder to sell? Do you think about that sort of thing?
1: I think about it a little bit, probably not as as much as I should. I, um, we're frankly probably not quite as sophisticated as we as we'd like to be. And I say we, my my team and I. In part, because I'm constantly saying, oh, we should do this. Oh, we should do that. And, and they're just busy saying, can we, can we do the, the thing you told us to do like two years ago? <laughs>
2: um,
1: you know, there, so there's a, there's a lot of catch up going on. For the most part, what I find is that when people come to me, I mean, a lot of times they just have a, a question and I'll just answer the question. I don't charge people for, for a small pieces of advice because why would I? You know, usually folks want some level of touch. Even whether it's a solo or a boutique, they're, they're looking for a hands-on solution for their particular issue. How do they grow their firm or how do they enjoy their firm more? How do they sell their firm? How do they create a firm that is saleable or improve the work-life balance or that attracts talent? If you're a solo consultant and you're struggling, how do you get more clients? And the answers to that, if you if you've read the book and you still need help, you know that you know, reading another article is not even going to get you there. What's going to get you there is some hands on advice, you know, over time, working you through it. The programs that I offer are all variations on that theme. With the boutique firms, they get uh, deeper diagnostics and, and more of me, more hands on advice, and they pay a, a, a lot more money. And they subsidize, and they know it, they subsidize my ability to work with solo consultants. And solo consultants still get. A lot of me just not me in person and you know i typically work with folks for six to 12 months uh at a time meaning they they the terms are we'll, we'll work for six months and then see whether we re-up and most folks i think my average duration right now is like three and a half years in terms of folks working with me. great that's great mm-hmm. yeah
0: you mentioned a team and i've seen especially with my my experience working for uh, that author in the niche space before Chris, that the situation there, there was since he wrote the book and his name was in the you know the name of the firm, everybody wanted to work with him and didn't want to work with any of the ten employees.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So, do you find that same situation, or how do you sure. deal with that?
1: Right now, I am the brand. This is something that again internally we're talking about that eventually we're going to transition away from, and we have a plan to do that over time. Uh, but right now, the brand is me. That's why the, the agency that did my new site made uh, me so prominent on it. it. It's horrifying for me to go to my homepage. It's just embarrassing. <laughs> but I'm the brand. And that's okay uh, because it's, it's, you know, it's a good brand.
2: I like the new site. I like, I like having your face on there because you are the brand. Um, what was interesting, though, is that is, uh, I saw a lot of we and I saw some referring to you in the third person. And so that confused me a little bit. So is this part of your longer term transition where you see the brand being more than you?
1: I think it's probably just inconsistent copywriting rather than smart strategy. There were places in the site where it seemed like, and I'd have to think through it, but if it's the about section, that might've been third person, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but that's actually good feedback. I mean, the site just launched a, a week ago or so. And so there might be inconsistent copywriting, the transition to making it not just about me will involve, uh, and it's partly a transition in products and what we offer and away from the brand being David A. Field. Because right now the brand is me. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, that copywriting, I would love to say it's strategic. It's um, alas, I, I think it's probably just um, sloppiness. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> the big project, isn't it? It's a lot to look at.
2: It seems like it's never going to end, right?
1: This particular uh, project was, in terms of getting the website done, was insane. Um, it, uh, it it certainly had its its uh, trials. <laughs>
0: yeah, all been there. So let's talk about what I, I think I referred to earlier as the other big pillar of building your authority, and that's speaking.
1: What's your story about speaking? Well, speaking is the fast cash. Once you get to speaking gig, I speak you know, with some regularity. I, I'm, I don't consider myself a professional speaker. I'm a consultant who speaks. I will generally get, get paid and my, my fees are fairly high to speak. Um, but if the right audience is in place, I'll waive some or, or all of that fee because I know every single speech delivers at least one client, minimum, right. <laughs> um, every single time it's almost too easy, <laughs> but you have to get, you know, but a couple things one, you have to get the speaking gig and then you have to put the, you know, whatever time is to, to go there. I have something coming up, I think in the Bahamas, you know, and, and you, you actually have to go there. Not that Bahamas <laughs> the Bahamas is a perfect place to go, but, um, you know, anytime you're traveling, traveling is very expensive in terms of time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was, I was on the speaking circuit for many years and when we had kids, I was like, I can't do it anymore. It's like, Is just too much time away. I couldn't do it. Now now that they're getting a little bit older I think I'm gonna go back to it to a certain extent But I have same experience though. You need to be a little bit choosy Because once you're once it's known that you speak and you know, people are interested in the topic You start to get requests. So it's not as much hustle It's in fact, you can stop hustling if you want and and you'll keep getting requests But everybody will ask you to speak. So it's like well, If you're not getting a huge speaking fee, you want to make sure that it's not going to be 10 people in a room, you know, in a side room that aren't really that into your thing. A classic example was when I was doing, when I shifted into doing more strategy work around mobile technology, I continued to stay in my rut for a a little while of speaking at web development conferences and my buyers weren't there. I was basically talking to the wrong audience and I saw that reflected in uh, a lack of clients coming out of these gigs. So I, you know, fly to Vegas and be there for three days and speak at this conference and have lots of great conversations with people who couldn't write me a check. So it was basically a waste of time.
1: I think there are a couple of either ways to look at it or phases. Uh, Tony Robbins purportedly spoke everywhere, absolutely everywhere and anywhere. He's speaking at a bus stop and you know, he did this to perfect his craft. And for a most people think they're better speakers than they are. Everybody thinks they're a, a great speaker. And again, there, there's a vast difference between great and good. So, so it's worth speaking just to practice your craft or sometimes to practice a speech or a concept and see whether it resonates. Once you have that down, then uh, I, I find fees chase away uh, a lot of folks who are just, you know, would be kicking tires or wasting my time. Um, my speaking fees will chase them right away. And, um, and I'm very happy with that. The right audiences are, are going to see past that and they'll pay anyway. Or like I said, if they have enough buyers in the room and I'm very specific about what that looks like. And I tell them, if you have enough people that look like this, then we can talk about reductions in fee.
0: Right. Yeah. Because you can make it up. I want to just pause
2: there because we're talking about this like everybody does this. And I know in our audience that they're not. So what I'm hearing you say, David, is every time you look at this, you're running this through a scenario saying, "Okay, my speaking fee is X. If they want to do it for less, I need to know who's in the audience. This is exactly who my buyer looks like. I know that I get, on average, one client project from every speech I do. I mean, I feel like you're... You, just a really good case study here about how to keep running every action you do in your business through this filter of is this my client? What does this do to my time? And what does this do to my bottom line?
1: Absolutely. And we we'll, we will take flyers. We, my team, and and I, um, all I'll try things. And some of those things work, and some of those things don't work. And and I think everybody should experiment. And and speaking might work for you, and speaking might not work for you. It's definitely worth a try. If you suffer from debilitating stage fright, it might not be the right tactic. There are plenty of ways to market a business, and and speaking is happens to be a very fast way to cash. But if you can't do it, you shouldn't feel badly about that. You do what you can do. I have a somewhere. I have a a worksheet that is marketing tactics by um, I think. Skill set or something like that, so you can look at what you're good at and then choose the marketing, the right marketing tactics. Because I don't think there's one size fits all. I happen to be able to to speak. It may be surprising. I'm actually fairly introverted, but I'm able to overcome that and do the things I need to do to grow grow my business. If I couldn't speak, I would do something else.
0: If you're debilitating stage fright, okay, but I would almost say you're in the wrong job. Like. If you can't get up in front of a room full of people, like, I'm not saying you shouldn't be anxious, but.
1: Well, I mean, it's just like writing. Uh, there's a, a group I work with in uh, upstate New York part of the time. And the head of this group, I mean, if you saw his writing, you would wonder how he signs any clients because it doesn't look like he got past third grade grammar. And the, he, he just doesn't have that skill set. And, and, you know, I don't know why it, it is what it is. But he has the knowledge and with a little, just a little bit of help, he was able to get on stage and showcase that knowledge in a way that, I mean, he's just been signing you know, nice seven-figure projects for the firm. You know, so he can't write, but he could speak. And I've seen the reverse. I've seen folks who cannot speak, but they can write and and they're willing to pick up the phone. And that more than anything drives business still. Plain old outreach is the number one most important must do it sort of rule for for building a firm. And if you're not willing to do outreach, then you are in the wrong business. If you're not willing to contact and connect with individuals and create relationships with other individuals, it's gonna be a very, very difficult sort of slog to build a business. If you're willing to do that, then you can tack on something else. You can tack on speaking, or you can tack on writing, or you can tack on participation at the trade association, or you can tack on uh, some more digital presence type things, be it a podcast or webinars, um, right? So those are all pieces you can layer on top of the core, and the core is good old-fashioned relationship building.
0: But we've been talking about speaking like specifically event, like speeches at an event, And that is very time consuming and it is, it is probably the most nerve wracking kind of talking. If that is too much for you, I would say podcasts, webinars, those sorts of things are, are they scale better. They're not as powerful. They're not as direct a route to clients, but they're faster than writing a book. That's for sure. And they give you a similar kind of relatively instantaneous feedback. Um, You're interacting with other people more or less in real time, even if it's remotely. So I I think those are good places to either get started on your way to speaking or, you know, if you really, really don't want to speak or for whatever reason you can't travel, then those would be good alternative, air quotes, speaking type engagements.
2: Well, and and they live longer. If you think about it, they live longer. Podcast is the new radio. I mean, you can can search for things. You can find them. They have a life beyond just the moment.
1: Um, Yeah. As with any of these kinds of marketing vehicles, it, it takes time if you're going to make the investment, make the investment. Any type of marketing that you try is not a one-time shot or even a one-year shot. You have to be willing to stick with it for a couple of years to give it a chance to build and grow and see whether it works. I do know folks say, well, I tried a podcast. Well, how long did you try it? Well, I did like four episodes. <laughs> right? Well, you know that, that's, um, you may have given up just a, a shade too soon. You know, All of these things work. I do think it's the most important thing, in addition to it, you have to network, is doing what is, feels good to you as an individual. Because if the, the business should serve you. I'm a huge believer in this. And this, this is actually, I spent, when I um, do in-person sessions with boutiques, a lot of the first day is spent just understanding the owners and what makes them tick. Because I want to build a, uh, build a firm that serves them as opposed to having them serve the firm. And if you are writing a book because you feel like you have to write a book, because it's the right thing to do, even though you don't want to, and it's drudgery and you hate it, or you're speaking, even though you hate it and the travel is killing you and it's ruining your marriage and, and all that, you know, don't do those things. The, the business is supposed to make your life better. <laughs> and, if, and if it's not doing that, then something is wrong. I, I mean, really, this, this is what it's all about. This is a. All of us who are in consulting or some sort of uh, service offering like this or in freelancing or running a, a, an enterprise, I mean, this is a lifestyle business. I, I took a month off, as you know. I just spent uh, September in Italy. That's why you run a business like this, <laughs> so you can have fun. So if it's not working for you, I'd say you, you know, pick a different tactic. Find another way at it. Here, here. Is Is that fair or, or is that flying too much in the face of, of what you teach? No, not at all. No, I mean, that's
2: exactly what we talk about. Right. This is about your life meaning the, the listener your life and and yes it's about serving clients of course it is clients are important but you do this you start a business you take the risks inherent in a bus- in starting a business for a reason
1: Yeah you don't like your boss <laughs> <laughs>
2: Or you don't like a big firm, which was right, the case in, in mm-hmm. my case. Yeah, exactly. You do it for a reason. And that part of that reason has to be that you get something out of it. If you're always at the short end of the stick, you won't have a business for very long.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, there's just, no, there's just no point in doing it if you don't enjoy it. There's too much risk. It can be a lot of work. And heck, you only go around once. That's a big part of what I try to do is I try I'm trying to create businesses that serve the individual, not the other way around. You know, people don't want to speak. I'm not going to push them to speak.
0: I can ask a million more questions, but that seems like a really great place to leave it for this time around.
1: That's
2: yeah, it's such a it's an uplifting message. I like I like
1: leaving it there. (laughs) Excellent. Well, you know, you, you know, we can we can go offline. You can ask questions or another time we can ask questions. I love chatting with you guys.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, David.
1: Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for asking smart, insightful questions. It makes it so interesting.
0: Uh, uh all right, let's hug it out. <laughs> <laughs> Listener, that's it for this week. We hope you join us again next week for the business of authority. Bye.
2: Bye-bye.